I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10. This morning we'll study verses 32 through 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. If you're visiting with us this morning, you may be unfamiliar with the culture of our church or the practice of preaching that we have here. We go and study together on Sunday mornings and evenings through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, paying attention to each word and each phrase because we believe that the Bible is the holy and inerrant word of God that all of it is profitable to us, and that whenever we read it together, we are submitting ourselves openly and publicly to the ministry of the Word of God as He ordained it in its order according to His wisdom. In our morning services, we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, and so we've studied every verse from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, until Mark chapter 10, verse 32, where we pick up this morning. Let me also remind you that the Gospel of Mark gives the account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And specifically, when we come to chapter 10, we are in the third year of Jesus' public ministry. The first year is often called his year of obscurity, where he was something of a nobody from nowhere who was ascending to prominence of teaching. In his second year, We see Jesus' so-called year of popularity come into being, where crowds come to him. Many of Jesus' miracles are accomplished in this second year of ministry. But here in his third year, this is his year of opposition, where we see Jesus more and more, step by step, pursue what will be his suffering in the city of Jerusalem on Mount Golgotha as he's raised up on the cross. And so here in chapter 10, we're beginning to walk with Jesus and his ascent to the holy city of Jerusalem for the last time. Let's read together God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. And they, that is Jesus and his disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, 
and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have heard your word. Oh Lord, we pray that you would open it to us. That Lord, you would give us understanding. Oh Lord, that you would rule in us and over us. Oh Lord, that you would help us to be a people who would receive the teaching of the scriptures. O Lord, that you would build us up in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Three things I want us to see this morning from this passage of Scripture are these. Firstly, I'd like us to see the resolute love of Christ. The resolute love of Christ. And then I want us to see two points for Christian leaders. The first of them, a lesson about Christ's glory. A lesson about Christ's glory. And then secondly, or thirdly, if you're keeping up with the points, a lesson about kingdom greatness. A lesson about kingdom greatness. In the passage we have, we are coming with Jesus and his disciples out from what's been called his Piraean ministry. If you're familiar with a map of ancient Israel, you may know that Perea was a region that was roughly northeast of the city of Jerusalem. And in fact, whenever Mark introduces us to this passage of scripture, what he tells us is that Jesus and his disciples begin to go up to the city of Jerusalem. And that has quite a bit of meaning in the Bible, this idea of going up. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But in specific, the road goes from the north through Jericho toward Jerusalem up the incline or elevation to the ancient city. Thus far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus do many things and teach many things. But specifically in chapters 8, 9, and 10, there is a connected thread or a persistent message that Jesus teaches his disciples. 
And what that is, is a threefold declaration of the coming of his suffering and his death, which will take place in Jerusalem. And as we come to verse 32, and we come yet again to this idea of what Mark is telling us, that Jesus and his disciples were going up. If you were to look at the map, they would be going south, but again, they are going up to Jerusalem. This is the common phrase. And in one sense, it means simply they are going up in elevation. They are climbing the hill to the city of Jerusalem. But in a second measure, there is a spiritual element. They are going up. They are ascending the hill of the Lord that is so often spoken of in the book of Psalms. They are going up for the specific sake of what will be the Passover season. And so as Mark uses this phrase, it's one pregnant with meaning. And it's one that ought to inform us significantly about what is coming in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're familiar with the city of Jerusalem, you'll know also that it has a wall that encompasses it. And in the time of Christ, the wall had gates. Today, if you were to go, there are portions of the wall that could be pointed to from the time of Christ. The northernmost gate, specifically, that led into the temple compound would have likely been the gate that they went through. The name of that gate is the Sheep Gate. This is a pilgrim's gate, a gate through which the people of Israel brought with them, specifically for the time of Passover, sheep and lambs to be sacrificed to make an atonement for sin. And so as Jesus and his disciples are gaining altitude from a very specifically earthly standpoint, they are likewise going up spiritually and gaining altitude as they approach the Lord for a season which we will continue in once Jesus in chapter 11 has his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. What Mark is saying here is it's a profound thing, and it may be a thing that whenever you read it, you let your eyes glaze over and pass right by. In verse 32, And they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. You see, Mark is pointing out something very specific for us as we read the gospel. Again, I say it's a thing that's subtle, and if you're not paying close attention to the passage, it may be a thing that escapes you. But friends, let me encourage you that as we read this this morning, pay attention to the words and why he says what he says. Why is this in the record? Why does this lead into the telling of Jesus' third prophecy concerning his suffering and death? Well, it's because... Mark is recording the profound effect that Christ walking to the city of Jerusalem had on his disciples and on the crowd of followers. Friends, what we've just read is that Jesus and his disciples were going up to the city of Jerusalem. Again, in a spiritual context, they're going up. And the effect that it had when Jesus is out in front of them, walking steadfastly with his face pointed toward the city, was that the disciples, those closest to him, the twelve, whenever they saw him doing this, they were amazed. 
You may translate it, they were astounded. You could press it and say they're shocked. They're taken aback by what they're seeing. The followers of Jesus, as they're standing behind him and they're watching him as he presses on, as he strides into the city, marching to Jerusalem. They're, they're fearful. But why? Why are they fearful? It makes perfect sense to think and to be somewhat assured that Jesus generally led his people. He was out in front of them. It makes good sense. Leaders do that kind of thing. Generals sometimes lead into battle. Why is it so shocking? Why is it an amazing thing? Why is it a fearful thing? Well, it's because that Jesus has announced his impending death in the city of Jerusalem twice, and he's about to do it a third time. In chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus announced his impending death. In chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus again announced his impending death. And if you're familiar with the larger testimony of the synoptic gospels, you may know that Luke's gospel tells us that the group, specifically the disciples, they didn't understand the full meaning of what Jesus was teaching. But I do think, friends, it's a very simple thing that whenever somebody tells you that if they go to Jerusalem, they are going to die, that that would sink in. And that was the case with the disciples and the followers of Jesus. The followers, they were afraid because they'd heard Jesus say that he was going to go to Jerusalem and die. But more than that, they knew that the Pharisees and the scribes had sent men out to catch Jesus. That those men, those Pharisees and scribes were from the city of Jerusalem, that Jesus had enemies there. They were afraid and fearful for themselves. What would it mean for us? Will we then be subject to the wrath of the Jewish establishment of religion in the city of Jerusalem? Maybe that's what goes through their minds. Maybe they're also looking and saying simply, we're afraid we're going to lose him, our teacher, our rabbi, our friend, our savior, our Messiah. We're afraid we're going to lose him. But the disciples, they're amazed. They're watching him, having heard him, and they're amazed. But why? Because they know he's walking to his death. They know he's walking to his death. He has set his face toward the city. He is resolved and determined to do it. No one's pushing him. It's his initiative. He's doing it. He's chasing himself out of a heart resolved to be the sacrifice that will be poured out for the salvation of many. They're amazed. They are beholding in the Savior Jesus Christ as one foot follows the next in godly stride, a heart of the Lord Jesus to be obedient to the requirement of God's law. They are beholding in Jesus this Profound resolve that he loves his disciples so much that he will give himself for them 
and be executed in the place of their execution. It's amazing. It has struck these people and the gospel writer cannot but record it. Would you have skipped over that? Easily so. And so it even brings into further relief what Jesus does whenever he turns to his disciples. And for a third time, in the midst of the fear of the crowd, but also the astonishment of the disciples, he takes the twelve aside. And again, he prophesies what's coming. Making it clear so that they can know and understand But as he sets himself to Jerusalem, he is about bloody, horrific, and agonizing business. Verse 33, he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise again. This is the most full of the three portents, prophecies of Jesus regarding his death as he tells his disciples. Jesus puts in some details that we've otherwise not seen thus far. But do you see the assurance in the tone of his voice See, we are going up, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and to the scribes. They will condemn him and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. There is assurance. Assurance. Why does Jesus tell them for a third time? Well, I do think that there is an element in which Jesus wants to convey to them that he is the captain of his own fate. He is the Lord of all history, the director of days and moments and years. He's the author of all things and all times and all places and specifically that no one will take his life from him but that he will lay it down of his own accord. If the disciples were already astonished, how much more? How much more? We do have the question that we'll have to ask him in the day. We can have some guesses. Why doesn't he tell the whole crowd? Maybe it was because Jesus had the heart of a pastor and he saw a terrified people. And if he were to tell them the gory details of flogging, mocking, spitting, killing, it'd be a bit too much. But they would run from him and hide in the rocks, the hills, and the plains. So friends, where's Mark and what's he doing? Well, he's telling us this, that when they saw the bold determination of Jesus marching resolutely in love for them and obedience to the Father, to his suffering and death, that it affected them tremendously. Friends, it ought to affect us. Some of you sitting here this morning You might imagine a falsehood. You may say, well, Jesus is God and man, and because of his divinity, he deifies his humanity. Because he knows all things, and he knows he will rise from the dead. He doesn't feel 
the terror, the horror, or the agony of what's coming. As if he's superhuman walking on the earth, deterministically knowing all things that the prospect for him isn't as grim as it would be for me or for you who don't know all things, who aren't divine but only frail and human. Friends, I want to tell you that's a false doctrine. The divinity of no way superimposed upon his humanity, but he maintained all of his humanity, being very God of very God and entirely in very man. How do I know? Well, it's because in a few chapters we're going to see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane outside the city in grief and agony as he awaits the cold chains to be shackled to his hands and to his feet, knowing that the whips will pierce his back, that mocking and spitting is just hours away. And what is the effect on the Lord? He's overwhelmed in his humanity and his physical human body sweats drops of blood. That's how I know. Was my Lord and your Lord affected by the news, the absolute assurance of his coming suffering here? Yes, he was. Undoubtedly. Without a shadow of question or doubt. Are you amazed that one foot followed the other? That going up the common route that he had taken so many times to the city, singing the psalms of ascent, as they're called, when he went as a child with a sacrificial lamb, with his mother and father into the city for obedience, knowing what's coming, that the lamb will bear his shame and his guilt and will be slain, that now he knows he's the lamb. That it's for him to go through the sheep gate. That this is the last time he'll ever enter the city. That he's going to make an atonement for sin. And out of love for the Father and love for me and you and every lost sinner, he went without flinching. This was no cattle drive, but the lamb in his glory. Why does Mark record this? So that we will see him this morning and be amazed at the depth of his love for us. To stand amazed that he knew what was coming. That the wrath of a sinful humanity would be extended against his innocent flesh. And that the just wrath of a holy God would be poured out without restraint on his soul, crushing him to death. And he still went. His love is greater than the horror of his suffering. That's the application from this, brothers and sisters. To be amazed at the love of Christ for you. To be astonished at what he did for us. To let it pierce you through. To know that he is the one that has walked in the valley of the shadow of death. To know that. 
that he took all the wrath of God for us. It's as the Gospel of John says in chapter 13, verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. As John 15, 13 testifies, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Are you struck by it this morning? Are you amazed at his love? Let me invite you to see him in the glory of the greatness of the love of Jesus Christ. As we go on in the passage of Scripture, we come to a lesson about Christ's glory. <clears throat> Every time we've seen Jesus previously telling his disciples and his followers of his coming death, in chapter 8, 31, 9, 31, and now here in 10, 33, Jesus has had a captive audience. People have listened to him, as you would. Someone tells you they're going to die, you might want to listen. But as his disciples have listened in previous situations, their response twice over has been marked with profound foolishness and selfish displays. Do you recall back in chapter 8, 31, several months ago for us in our study, Jesus was foretelling his coming suffering and what happened with Peter? Do you remember? Let it never be so, Lord. Do you remember? As Jesus said, he must go die. The Son of Man must be put to death. Let it never be so, Lord. What did Jesus say in response to him? Oh, it's famous. Get behind me, Satan. Is the temptation of Peter to run and to not take step by step, but rather to avoid was brought to the ears of Christ. A temptation, an attack, a trial. Chapter 931, we have yet again Jesus telling of his impending suffering, that his death is coming. And do you remember what the disciples then did immediately afterward? They began an argument of who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's like it just goes right over their head. The telling that Jesus will die and the disciples are all concerned with well, who gets the leftovers? Like spoiled children arguing over the estate of a deceased father. Well, here we come to the passage and you think for the third time, maybe we're going to improve, right? Unfortunately not. Look at it with me. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Think of it. You're like a father. You're sitting in the living room with your family. You've got the news of your death and you're sitting telling your family you're breaking the hard news, right? What would the response be that you would expect? Well, hopefully they love you. Hopefully the response would be weeping and mourning with you already over the bad news. I'm sorry. 
wife, sons, daughter, children, grandchildren, I'm sorry, I'm going to die. You would expect wailing, mourning, crying, grief. You wouldn't expect this. Oh, you're on your way out? Let me find my way in. But that's kind of what's going on here. You've got the disciples of Jesus having heard the news and immediately they conspire. These two brothers, the sons of Thunder, Thunder, Bonarges, as we're told in the scriptures, they conspire to ask Jesus for a place of priority and glory in his kingdom. So they hear what Jesus is saying. They hear that suffering is coming, but they're hanging on to that last phrase, but will rise again. And they're imagining a worldly kingdom A throne room with three thrones. And they want to be one on the left and one on the right. As you read the Gospel of Matthew, you come to chapter 20 and the same account or similar account is recorded. And it seems that these two men, the sons of Zebedee, are being actually pressed by their mother. Right? She wants her boys to have a good place. Once fishermen, now men in the royal court of King Jesus on the earth. That sounds like a pretty decent thing, a nice thing after all. Whenever I was studying for this, it made me think of just a few days ago. I took my youngest son, Benjamin, with me, and we went to Kaufland. He and I were riding along, and uh, we got near to the store, and we're going down into the parking complex there. And I hear a little voice from the back seat, Daddy? And I can always tell there's going to be a request. He says, Daddy? I said, yes, Benjamin. He said, I want to ask you a question. I said, okay, go ahead. He said, Daddy, I want you to buy me anything I want in the store. And I thought to myself, well, maybe we can capitalize on this. Will he say steak? Benjamin, do you want steak? I'll buy you any steak in the store. We'll share it. No, Daddy, I don't want steak. Hmm, do you want lobster? No, Daddy, I don't know what that is. What's a lobster? What do you want? I was thinking, Dad... I'll pick out any toy and any candy in the whole store and you could buy it for me. These are the questions that derive from the heart of a child, right? A childishness. Cute, sweet, admissible with one so little. But with grown men who know better, the question falls on the ears of Christ as the murmurings of a child. And do you see the response that Jesus gives to them. Verse 38. It's sweet, friends. You do not know what you are asking. They don't. Because it's not simply that they've requested a nice seat, but they've requested a nice seat in the context of his glory, the glory of Jesus. But friends, they don't have a clue what his glory is. After all, we've already mentioned they perceive it to be an earthly courtroom of an earthly king with earthly thrones. They don't perceive the reality of it. And so Jesus, after telling them they don't know what they ask, touching a finger on the childishness of their request, he asked them very specifically, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be able are able to be baptized with the baptism which I am to be baptized. The two little boys, the sons of Zebedee, 
sons of thunder. We're able. I could do that. They just don't know. The language of the cup in the Bible is a specific phrase. It means the fullness of a thing, the whole of it. One might drink the whole of the cup of blessing. Or in the New Testament, it's very specifically used by the Lord Jesus Christ. The cup representing the wrath of God in suffering. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood. But, but Father... If this cup may pass from me, let it be so. In the agony of his humanity and flesh. Can you drink the suffering? Can you endure what's coming? You see, they don't know that the cup is simply a symbol of the suffering of Christ on the cross. Can you be baptized with the baptism which I am to be baptized with? What are we talking about here? We're talking about the suffering on the cross where his crown is a crown of thorns where his throne is cruciform and the songs of his highest praise are the echoes of his deathly agony and his baptism is his blood sprinkling down from his brow, from his hands, from his side and his back, covering his body and bathing him in the satisfaction of his own blood. That's what we're talking about. That the king will be anointed from his own veins. This is incredible suffering and the men don't know it. They don't understand it. They don't perceive the greatness, the agony, the horror of the suffering of the glory of Jesus Christ. Yes, we can do that. We can do it. Gently, Jesus looks to these men and he tells them both that their suffering is coming. That they will. They will. After all, they're going to. They're going to drink that cup of his suffering. They will, they will endure the baptism that comes through martyrdom. But the men couldn't possibly know, but I'm sure that they perceived as they stood on Golgotha, John with his arm around the mother of Christ, loving her as a son given to her by the Lord, looking up and on either side of the Lord, convicted were sinful men and criminals dying with him in worldly shame and mocking. That was what would be at his left and to his right in the moment of his glory. Can you imagine being those men struck with the reality that that's what they requested? It could not have been lost on them, though the scriptures don't record its effect. Friends, do you want to be a leader? Do you want to be someone that has a share in Christ's glory in the church, to be thought of well, to be a teacher, to be held in honor? The teaching of Jesus here is this, that the glory of Christ cannot be separated from the suffering of the Savior. 
When the Apostle Paul speaks of filling up what is lacking in the suffering of the Lord in his own flesh, this is what he's talking about. Suffering for the Lord, not figurative, but real suffering. If you want glory in the midst of the kingdom of God, that glory will be in being like your Savior and drinking his cup and being baptized with his blood and suffering. That's what it will be. Maybe we should examine our hearts and say, do we really want this thing? Do we really want to be this sort of leader? Because to be a leader will mean that we follow a suffering Savior and we suffer alongside him and enter into his sufferings in this life in anticipation of the life to come. The Lord continues, and there's a second lesson. Because as we read, whenever this is all going on, and Jesus speaks to them, that the other ten of the twelve disciples, uh, they hear. And in verse 41, whenever they heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. That's understandable, isn't it? You've got this competitive spirit that's cropping up in the midst of the disciples. We're still back to the question of who's first in the kingdom. Who's greatest? It's, it's still there. They're indignant. Here are these two brothers and they want to edge everyone else out. And so we see that the heart even of the other disciples is still just as fixated on their own glory, on their own enjoyment of honor as these two brothers. And here we have Jesus intervening in verse 42. He is stopping the foolish conversation of a group of men in verse 42. He says to them, you know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying to these men who will be leaders, these apostles that will be sent out, that will be in every way ministers of the gospel, establishing the church, nourishing the people of God, caring for the lambs and for the sheep. He's saying to them, you will not be a leader You're not going to be great like the world measures greatness. You're not going to lead like they do. Being in a high and exalted place. Receiving adoration. That's not how this works. You've got it all wrong. If you're going to serve in the kingdom, if you're going to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to be a true servant of everyone. If you're going to be a leader in the midst of the kingdom and in the midst of the church, if you're going to taste greatness and what it's like to to be truly great, you're going to be the very least. You're going to be the guy that mops the floors and puts up the chairs. You're going to be the very least, a servant, taking time out of your own schedule to pursue the people of God. You're going to be like, well... A shepherd that serves the sheep and goes where the sheep are and pulls the sheep out of the mud that they get stuck in and defends the sheep from the foolish situations they find themselves in where the wolf's mouth is even round about their necks. You're going to be a servant. 
That's what the kingdom is like and greatness within it. The first must be the last. I love where he, from verse 43 to 44, transitions servant to slave. Demanding no rights, no honor, no glory, no nothing. Just simply in a humble, obedient service. And the Apostle Paul takes up this idea. And in his letters to the churches calls himself a bondservant, a doulos, a slave. Without the greatness of gowns and hats, pomp and circumstance. but the simple clothes of a servant. But you see, friends, it's not just that we are to be a people with a moral idea. That to be a leader in the midst of God's people, you must be a servant. We're walking after Jesus Christ. He gives himself as an example for what Christian service must look like and must be like. For even, in verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve the Lord of glory, the great Son of Man of the book of Daniel, chapter 7, the one who has all authority, that one, even he, as Jesus refers to himself, even he, came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. And how does he describe his service? Giving his life in exchange for the sake of to receive the lives of many to be a ransom. I pray that there are men among us who have a desire to be officers, who feel a call to be an elder, a deacon, to lead, to teach to be engaged in Sunday school teaching, whatever, to lead in the midst of the people of God. Examine your hearts, brother. Do you long after worldly greatness or do you long to simply be a servant, a slave of Christ? Are you content to lead in the midst of the people of God, not demanding your own way? but enduring the hardships and the needs of others to be a servant with them, to be in the muck and the mess of the lives of sinners, even if it, well, takes you all the way to the end of mimicking your Savior, giving of your time for the benefit of others, giving of your energy, your wealth, whatever, for the benefit of others. That's what greatness is in the kingdom. And every leader... It follows the Lord Jesus Christ, whether they're an apostle, whether they're a minister, an elder, a deacon, the director of a ladies' ministry or children's ministry or youth ministry. This is what we're called to model. May the Lord give us true perception of his glory, a true perception of what it is to be great before his throne. And bring us to our knees so that we would be brought low for the sake of his glory and the good of others. Father in heaven, we thank you for the writing of Holy Scripture. 
Oh Lord, that you've given us instruction that we might see ourselves in the light of your holy word. Oh Father, we ask that you would grow us up in faith. Oh Lord, that we would no longer chase after childish designs, but rather that we would follow Jesus where he goes. Oh Lord, that we would hop footprint to footprint after our captain, our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah. That Lord, we would expect to enter into his sufferings if we would serve his people and be his servant. Oh, Father in heaven, build our church up, we pray. Help us to love you, to glorify you, and to submit ourselves to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.